I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay, then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop-off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. I've always been very good at is creating my own little world. And I've all, I did that. From early childhood, like, you know, the guitar riff down now, 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 in in no memory. It's quite reminiscent of, say, like Stone Satisfaction or, you know, a T Rex riff or something. And the Chelsea Hotel was like fabulously dumpy in those days. It hadn't been refurbed, and that's how we wanted it. You know, there's some guy in the next room practicing saxophone, and um, because he was living there, the pillows stank. Um, Rob actually had to have his room fumigated because he woke up the next morning with orange juices full of cockroaches. It was like a family hotel, and they always used to make me show my passport when we came in. I don't know if they thought I was a woman of ill repute or something. And then I got really sweaty, and the, the catsuit became kind of like clingy and sticky. And then the sound was absolutely diabolical, and they bloody well did advertise it. And so all the record companies turned up. He was. They called it manic depressive in those days, but I guess these days they'd probably say bipolar. And he was suicidal very frequently. Throughout my whole career, I've, I've always somehow managed to maintain that drive, even though I've fallen quite badly at certain points. Maggie K. Demont, welcome. It's fantastic to see you because I know that there's you have this... Um, reputation of being a very very positive warm kind person <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> so you've got something to live up to here for the next hour okay <laughs> oh my god that's really and, nice and, and, and it's really nice you know like I had a bit of a bad night and I'm thinking oh, god, we've got to do an interview but I'm gonna enjoy this and I'm gonna feel better so I oh, wow. but I want to take you back first of all to your childhood mm. and ask you about the family 
your family that you were brought up in, um, what sort of music they heard and whether they were a creative family in any way? Do you know, first of all, I think I was really, really lucky that I had a very happy childhood. And do you know what? Sometimes I think back to my very first memory and I just remember I was sitting in a high chair that was blue. I remember the tray was actually blue. And I just remember shafts of sunlight coming through into the kitchen where I was. And I felt happy. I just felt happy, which was really, what, what an amazing thing to, to have that as your sort of first memory. Um, yeah, I had a happy childhood. Um, I, I grew up in Hansworth Wood in Birmingham before we moved to Harborn. My parents uh, were very much into music. My mother particularly, she had um, a really big sort of, you know, choice of, of stuff she listened to, including um, Edith Piaf, um, Percy Sledge, I Am Butterfly, Kraftwerk. I mean, you name it. Oh, my dad was just a huge Sinatra fan. My mother danced, she danced a lot and she was very glam. And uh, my father, bless him, he liked to try and dance and tap his fingers, but I think actually that he didn't have a very good sense of rhythm. I think he was also a bit tone deaf. His dream was always, bless him, uh, around the Scarlet Fantastic period, he said he wanted to do a duet with me. <laughs> bless him. It was a bit bonkers. <laughs> but um, it never happened. I, I, he'd have had to have had a lot of singing lessons. So I don't actually think you can, if someone's a bit tone deaf, I don't think you can actually teach them to sing. But he loved his music, you know, he was such a Sinatra fan. I, I think I know every single word to um, Strangers in the Night. So, yeah, so it was, a, it was a good childhood. Starting off in Hansworth Wood, I had um, a brother, um, you know, we, we made mud pies and put flower petals on them. I used to save worms. And um, we had little sails in our shed, you know, sell, sell off old teddy bears and things. It's quite fun. When did you sort of exhibit a talent for singing and performing? Oh, my goodness. Um, one of my very first performances, I was uh, in Western Supermare with my little friend Tina Peters, who was about half my height. I think we were 11 and we decided... <laughs> to enter the talent competition at the big uh, whatever it would have been you know one of those great big sort of theatre places and so we practiced and practiced at, I think it was her aunt's house we were staying at we practiced chitty chitty bang bang and green sleeves so um we went we, we were very nervous and we went up anyway and so there was a pianist on the stage and he said have you got your music with you we just went no anyway we stood I'm sure we were absolutely diabolical um we did get a consolation prize. We got some chocolates, but that I think that was my. Oh, actually, no. I was doing um, I was doing things at school before that. I think like the first play I was in, um, it was a musical play, and it was in my infant school. School, and I played a raindrop, which is very sweet. I wore little wellies and a plastic mac, and I had an umbrella. So, were your parents yeah. always supportive of you going into? that direction because you went to drama school when you were a teenager didn't you so I just wondered how supportive they were because if I think of my parents they were very uh, working class in the effect that you've got to do something that earns a living you know 
don't go into something creative do, do you know what yeah I mean that that generally is the thing isn't it but I, I guess I got I was let off the hook actually um they were very kind of tied up with their own lives they were very busy people and um they were both like hugely supportive of everything I decided to do or not do I mean I went to uni after sort of traveling around and stuff and um you know I did my A-levels early and school was a nightmare for me but that's another story um but I met Rick who was in Swan's Way well he was in the first band with me as well play things before Swan's Way and then we were in Scarlet Fantastic together um we met at uni and I left uni I didn't stay and do the course and you know a lot of parents would probably be annoyed about that kind of thing my parents didn't mind at all absolutely fine they you know they and my mother, bless her, has, has been really encouraging throughout my whole life, you know, and if I've needed a loan at any point, she's she's helped me out as well, which is great. I mean, I feel very privileged and very lucky and always believed in me. Never, They never made me feel bad for, you know, not achieving what maybe some people think is thought of as success. I mean, in, in my humble opinion, I do what I do because I enjoy doing it and I've had some success along the way. And you know, there's still people out there that like what I do and everything. So uh, there's never there's never been any negativity from my mum. And, and my dad, as I say, was always very supportive. He uh, he, he lived ended up living in Cape Town, South Africa. And when the Scarlet Fantastic stuff was out, he used to go around the radio stations <laughs> trying to plug me. <laughs> bless him. Oh, He's not alive anymore. He died quite young. He, and, and bless him. And, and he actually died wearing a Scarlet Fantastic T-shirt, which is quite sweet, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. That's actually very sweet. <laughs> Um, I know, I know. You went to the Birmingham Youth Theatre, so I'll just take you back oh my God, before yeah, university. Did yeah. you have um, a teacher or a mentor there that actually really passed on information that you have held with you for your life? Um, I have to say, not at the Birmingham Youth Theatre, but at, at my primary school, there was this brilliant woman called Miss Beach. And then there was the other guy, Mr. Marshall. He was this great big fellow. And she was this petite woman. And they were so into like music, poetry, drama. I was in my element at primary school um, in Harbour and Birmingham. I absolutely loved it. That just brought everything. And I was encouraged. You know, and every time I wrote a poem, the headmaster would come in and they'd take my poem, they'd read it out in class. You know, it made me feel good about what I did. Um, the unfortunately the secondary school didn't work like that at all it's just to put back putting people in boxes and trying to get them to do what they thought you should do you know blah blah hated that um regarding the Birmingham Youth Theatre <laughs> I didn't actually last too long in that I got thrown out for talking too much not paying attention you know going out having a fag I was just a naughty girl really but okay you went to university <laughs> and that's where you met Rick P. Jones yeah yeah what was your first impression of him? Was it just because you, you know, fancied him and he was good looking or was it his talent? What was it about him that you were really um, He was actually very fanciable. And even though I'd had a lot of um, things going on with blokes, you know, boys, guys, whatever, um, I think Rick was the first person that I actually really fell in love with. And I, I think was he was my first soulmate. And also... Um, he played in a band he had a band called the stay at homes and uh I kind of was really impressed with that because I, I think I wanted to get involved you know somehow in, in bands and do stuff 
And so I think my first um, sort of rock band experience was standing on the stage with um, Mary Ann, who is also the Giles, is, he was a bass player, it was his girlfriend. So the pair of us stood there in our leopard skin and, you know, God knows what the singing was like, but that was, we did backing vocals for the stay at home. So my, having said that, way before um I'd say when I was about 14 um one of my closest friends one of my best mates Shirley she's still a very close friend um we were at school together we wrote a song together very much based and influenced by rock follies we called it Gloriana so yeah um yeah I mean Oh, did it, it go? goes, it's the, the lyrics, I seem to remember, Mrs. Moffat's done a bunk, the barb shape made her a punk, she flies higher, cooler, higher, in an automatic spin dryer. And I can't remember how the tune goes. If Shirley was here, she'd bang it out on the piano, because that's what we do when we get together. Shirley gets on the piano and I sing, and we have a right old laugh. So whose idea was it to actually then leave university was it rick leaving and you followed or was was it a um, mutual decision well the thing was he was two years older than me see so and the, the also no offense to the people that i was at uni with because a lot of them are still friends even though i wasn't there for that long um i had lived quite a life beforehand and i was having such a great time in birmingham partying you know going to the rum runner um just enjoying a, a great time um i found it just wasn't rocking my boat university. It wasn't stimulating me. I was quite bored. Um, I wanted to go back to Birmingham. And actually, because I was in Kent, Canterbury, and actually Rick, as I say, he was two years older than me. He, so he stayed on and finished his degree. Um, I moved back to Birmingham and then he came back to Birmingham and li lived with me. And then we just lived together for like 10 years. Amazing. Well, not, wow. not in my house, but, you know, we got our own little cottage. Actually, it was like five pounds a week. It was brilliant. So tell me about Birmingham at that period, because there was a there was a lot of music coming out of Birmingham and it was a sort of uh, a centre during the late 70s, early 80s, wasn't it? It was amazing. And actually on that. Yeah. Our first band, Playthings, we were on um, a TV show uh, called Look Here and Toya and Chris Phipps were presenting. We were on that. Duran Duran had said that we were the other best Birmingham, a band in Birmingham apart from them. Um, we knew Duran Duran quite well We, because, you know, everyone just hung out together and we supported them. Um, I think it might have been their first tour. Um, there was a lot going on. And actually, my brother, bless him, was around at that time. He was a photographer and he just took photos of everything and everyone, the club, scene, fashion, music, bands and... Um, I've just signed um, a publishing contract to release three editions of a book called Duran Duran on Sen. So it's not just a, it's not just all the pics he took of Duran because he did sessions with them when they were recording their first single uh, Planet Earth. But it's also like the life that was going on in the Rum Runner. You know, we've got fashion design, designers like Carl and Bell. I mean, Boy George was around. Um, there was the Scar scene. There was Dexys. There was UB40. There was uh, Steel Pulse. Everyone, and of course, like all of the sort of um, Red Wedge type bands, you know, like um, Au Pairs and, you know, there's so much going on. I remember Roland Gift used to live in my road at one point. Um, I used to get the bus, see him on the bus. Um, yeah, everyone was really friendly. I like Birmingham, I still do. Um, very down to earth place. So it was just a really happening, inspiring sort of cultural melting pot of, of, of talent, really. So I loved it. It was inspiring. Well, the bands you mentioned are so diverse in their music. That's what was, is really fascinating yeah. about this. 
Was yeah. it something where you feel you can look back and say, oh, yeah, I really gleaned bits and pieces back then from different people? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, the very first band I think we had before um, before uh, play things, funnily enough, someone just sent a picture to me um, and we ended up, we were called the Cats and the drummer sort of did like ska reggae rhythms. Um, and we did a track on an album, I, I think it was called Live at the Barrel Organ, and, and it was organised by Brumbeat, who um, were the sort of music uh, magazine at the time. And, you know, it's interesting, there were like over 100 people in that photograph, and there were three girls. It was myself, Carol Decker from Tapau, and a girl called Jenny from The Mood Elevators. And you look at that and you think, my God, you know, that's not good. Three girls amongst like over a hundred guys and and strange but that, that was as I say I'll probably share it on my social media at some point because it was a picture taken from way back I think it was about 1980 and it was um yeah so yeah and and then you know um the stay at homes Rick's band were a punk band um play things we were kind of indie sort of gothy punky pop um, and then Swansway was like something completely different, meeting Rob Shaw, who, who you know, we all ditched what we'd been doing before and, and bought a, a completely set of different influences to the music that we created as Swansway. Can you tell me, though, this, because Swansway, with the, th with the three of you, there's you, Rick, um, and there's Robert Rob Shaw. Shaw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, was there a conscious decision with Robert Shaw to make a band or was there a... Uh, a decision only once you'd met him that you just thought okay we've got something here we can work together how did that come about I think the second thing you said actually which was I, I, can't, I can't remember why we met Rob you know because it is a long time ago actually I mean oh my god it's it's what 40 years or something ah I'm grateful I'm still alive actually because people aren't so you know every day thank you um so we met Rob and I can't remember what the purpose of the meeting was originally or whether we just sort of stumbled across each other but um we bonded the three of us really bonded and I think you know you 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 do things sort of instinctively intuitively well I do and we decided we wanted to do something together but we weren't exactly sure what or how so we thought first of all we'll ditch the instruments that we're used to playing and we'll all do something we've never done before so it's like I mean, it's a nuts idea I know it's ridiculous I mean it's mad who would have thought it would have ever worked but I mean that's you know hey ho we have had some weird insight into why it might work but so it's like Maggie you play drums and I'm like oh all right then <laughs> Rick you play double bass okay <laughs> Rick's like a guitarist um and Rob bless him um who was a an amazing singer still is and uh, a great lyricist uh, so um, that's how that was the bones of the band, a three piece with um, me doing the rhythm, Rick on the double bass and Rob singing. And that the song Soul Train was one of the very first songs that we wrote. And it was just basically um, written, you know, drums, double bass and vocals. I mean, later on, Rob did bring in a saxophone that he couldn't play, but he made, made some interesting noises on it. And uh he did play a bit of acoustic guitar later on as well, so. But you hooked up somehow with Simon M. Woods, didn't you? Oh, my was... God, Simon Woods, yeah. <sighs> Tell me about him then. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it sweet. 
we were all living in um at that point in Bolsall Heath in uh, this is where all of the bands and sort of musicians and fashion people were living um in like um, charity housing flat sounds a bit weird. It was a company, churches and district housing. We all got really great um, flats. So me and Rick were in this little tiny flat um, with two double bases. It's a bit of a squash. And next door, it turned out, Simon Woods was living with his family. And um, we used to babysit for Simon, me and Rick. And... Rick would be ear rolling because we knew that he had been UB40's manager. So Rick was um, ear rolling him. Oh, I forgot to mention, of course, was UB40 around as well. Yeah. I'm, I was actually in a little film with them called Dance with the Devil that you can find on uh, YouTube. I was looking at it the other day. It's sweet. So Brian Travis uh, directed it, bless him. Okay. So um, yeah, Rick was um, talking to Simon and Simon, and we used to rehearse in our bedroom there as well tiny flat and uh rick said to simon why don't you come over and hear us uh rehearse and so simon did and simon said i want to manage you so and it kind of because he'd got the contacts which is great i mean we had talent you know we couldn't have got a deal if we'd not got something going um but we got signed we signed a publishing deal i think it was with cbs at the time although they all keep changing it turned into sony but i think it was cbs at the time um so we signed a publishing deal with them and um actually i think that was after we'd recorded i think simon paid for us to go and record our very first single which was called theme from the balcony and we recorded it in jacob's studios which was a residential studio i got fond memories of that actually i think that was was that 82 it might have been um but Again, we were trying to be our normal radical selves and we decided we had to record this single with absolutely no EQ on it. So that's sort of the engineer was a bit stumped when we said, no, we don't want any EQ, no EQ. <laughs> so I think everything was like turned to naught and we just had to record it as it was. So sort of organic, natural. Actually, it doesn't sound too bad. And that's where Rob is playing a do, 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 do on the saxophone. Um, it's called Theme from the Balcony. Yes, yeah, sweet memories, actually. When Theme from the Balcony was released and it and, um, it wasn't a hit. Um, and I just wondered at that point, because when you're tracing your dream, and I know this very well as well, you know, you trace your dream, you get the knocks and it can be quite difficult. Can you remember back um, how you felt at that point or and how you got the drive really to to keep pushing? You know, that's a really interesting point about having the drive. Um, throughout my whole career, I've, I've always somehow managed to maintain that drive, even though I've fallen quite badly at certain points. And if you like, I can tell you about one that was just a dreadful thing that happened. But anyway, um, um, do you know, I think we were just so excited. We were so young. I don't think we thought we'd failed. I think, you know, what we were just like kids and this was happening to us, you know, someone had paid for us to go in like a really posh studio and do some recording and then it got played on the radio and to us that was absolute success. And we were, you know, there was a buzz about us in Birmingham. Um, it was all good. It was, we were buzzing. We didn't feel like we'd failed at all. I mean, for us just to have a record out was, you know, that was amazing. We, we hadn't expect, I don't think we expected it to be a hit. I think, I can't remember who played it. Someone, would it have been Peter Powell or Simon, somebody or other? Um, 
But I mean, we had quite a lot of credibility in our own hometown and we had a certain look and a style and people were picking up on us because we were doing quite a lot of live gigs and um, the feedback was all really positive. So I don't, I don't think we felt we'd failed at all. We felt we were on a mission, at the beginning of a mission. So. Oh, fantastic. Although talking about drive, I find this really fascinating because um, I believe that everyone uh, who's successful, their drive is based in some sort of childhood wound is based in the in the past in their in their early days you know you can sort of base interesting it, if you look at tina turner it's often um it's about her childhood and mm -hmm. the things that happened to her when she was mm -hmm. really young if you look mm -hmm. at madonna the need mm -hmm. for attention comes from when her mother died oh yeah like um, i can relate to that i mean i i didn't go into great big detail about my dad but he was they called it manic depressive in those days, but I guess these days they'd probably say bipolar. And he was suicidal very frequently. And there was one time um, when he failed to do the job properly, but he'd actually um, parked his car in, in our garage, you know, and he'd done the whole thing with the exhaust and he'd locked the door. And my mother just had this kind of premonition thing. She was working and she never used to go home for lunch but she just felt she she had to go home and she went home and she found my dad unconscious. Um, and she was, she arrived at the house and there was like blue smoke coming out of the garage and she found him unconscious. And, um, and I remember, it, yeah, I, 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 I kind of obviously felt very sad, but I felt angry as well. And then we went to the hospital and my dad was just sitting up saying, oh, you know, um, I went on um, a big drive around, you know, all my favourite places. And then, um, you know, I, I just thought, I, I guess, I guess that must feel like a big rejection. I mean, if I was going to sort of psychoanalyse um, myself, um, I guess people would say, well, you know, your father was trying to sort of leave you. I, maybe I took it like that. I don't know. Um, it didn't. I, I think what I've always been very good at is creating my own little world, and I've all I did that from early childhood. I um, that's why I say I had a happy childhood. I have really happy memories. Um, me and my brother had had a good time. Um, our parents were doing their own thing. My dad had his ups and downs, but he had a lot of ups as well. So, you know, those are just a few incidences, but I've, I've told you that because you mentioned about this, you know, the need for attention or I would say rather more than attention. What's the word I'll be looking for? Love might be the wrong word. Um, Com confirmation, confirmation, yeah, maybe. Acceptance uh, except, yeah. and, and just just um, to be needed, you know, to hmm. to not be sort of rejected i don't know um i'll tell you why the reason i ask that because mm, i don't mm. uh, i don't want to sort of you know stress you on a point there but no it's fine um, it's absolutely my, fine my father um never had anything to do with me because he didn't want a third child and my mother was pregnant oh, with a third child right, so okay. i'd never got any i say any love it's not true he did i'm sure he yeah, loved me but yeah, i yeah. didn't really feel that from my right. father and i think i yeah. ended up being a presenter on mtv to get love from the world that doesn't really exist because right exists. yeah and so it's like a um what's it called it's 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 like trying to fulfill one of the lack that you have with something else and that is the drive yeah. that that pushes you i i i think you you have a a, a very valid point it's a very good point and um 
you know I, I I tend to overthink a lot of things I do spend a lot of time thinking and sort of I come to all kinds of conclusions but you know with age comes wisdom and I mean I know I'm very lucky to have a very positive outlook which my brother wasn't lucky to have in that sense either he, he was very up and down bless him he was but he was incredibly talented I mean I can't wait for people to see all the pictures that he took they're they're phenomenal and really something special um but he had problems in other ways bless him um so I, I think with age comes wisdom with experience comes wisdom and you know I've sort of rationalized a lot of the stuff that I've been through and and recently as well you know my husband died six years ago my brother was killed in a car crash two years before that um yeah there's a lot of shit um but it's life you know it happens there's people much worse off than me you know um but it's how you deal with it it's what affects your day-to-day -day life is is and I think luckily for me touch wood having a positive kind of streak but also being able to sort of uh, you know realize that you, you kind of got a choice well I, I feel I have a choice I, I can either sink or swim and you know I try to keep things in the moment I try and not project too much over future outcomes you know just be in the moment and obviously as I'm getting older and time is going faster you know you, you don't want to wish time away you want to and bottom line is I, I suppose it's like a Buddhist thing or something you know it is as it is things happen and they are as they are and you either deal with them or you don't um and I I do have a lot of good stuff in life um I really value my friendships with people I live by the beach now which is amazing um I've got a great son who's a brilliant drummer. My mum, bless her, is still around. She's 92. Um, she lives a couple of miles away from me and hopefully she's going to move quite close, even just a couple of doors down, which would be really nice. So yeah, there's a lot of positive things. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives for newly appointed agents. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers USBP. That's cbp.gov careers USBP. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. Um, Let's, let me take you back to then, you know, this, this really positive time as well, when things really did pick up, you know, when the second mm. single come out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, Soul Train from Swansea. And you, um, you were in New York, weren't you, as well? recording can you yeah. tell me about that period oh my god it's amazing it's like a great time um the first time we went because we went to work with Mike Thorne who um you know did Soft Cell and Carmel and Bronsky Beat and everything and um we we wanted to set the Chelsea Hotel and the Chelsea Hotel was like fabulously dumpy in those days it hadn't been refurbed and that's how we wanted it you know there's some guy in the next room practicing saxophone and um because he was living there the pillows stank 
Um, Rob actually had to have his room fumigated because he woke up the next morning with orange juices full of cockroaches. And we just loved it. You know, we couldn't stop taking photographs of uh, ourselves and being in um, there. And we drank our first tequila there, I think, which is amazing. And we got, um, you know, we were A-listed for all the clubs and like Grace Jones was hanging out with Dolph Lundgren and there it was all the concept clubs like Area and Limelight and everything, Pyramid Club. Um, oh, yes, I forgot to mention we were working as well. <laughs> um, we were recording music. Um, Mike Thorne was fun to work with. He, he got in Uptown Horns. They were a great horn section. Um, yeah, it was just a buzz all around. I mean, you know, any excuse. We were flown over. Um, I guess it would have been business class or first class. And there were these like kids from Brum dressed in rag market clothes. And you know, my fake white fur coat. Um, and of course it was fake because I wouldn't have wanted to wear real fur. But, um, you know, looking down at my shoes, they were actually gaffer taped together. <laughs> um, but we we looked the business. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a really, really, really fab time. And I'm very grateful that um, you, you I worked did. At, or you, you, you recorded at Electric Lady Studios, didn't you? Which Certainly which, did. Which was set up for Jimi Hendrix, actually. Yes. Yeah. He, you yeah, know, yeah. He, he wanted certain specific things in a studio. And then you yeah. had all these amazing people who had recorded there, including, yeah, yeah. you know, Stevie Wonder had been there. Amazing. So. I know. It's just incredible. We were so lucky. And it was just a really good experience. And we, we, we went back a few times, actually, and we didn't go in the Chelsea Hotel again. <laughs> I can't remember where we stayed. Milford Plaza or something. And oh, they... they it was like a family hotel and they always used to make me show my passport when we came in. I don't know if they thought I was a woman of ill repute or something. Because <laughs> I was wearing like, you know, leopard skin and fishnet tights and sort of, you know, not too far from 42nd Street. They probably thought, oh, <laughs> should we let her in the hotel? I don't know. But um, yeah, no, it was good. It was good. Uh, good, good, great time to be in New York mid 80s. Yeah, good. You you mentioned uh, being on tour with Duran Duran and the, around the time of Planet Earth. Yeah. Um, now, I just wondered what that tour was like and what your impression. I knew I know that you knew them, but they were young and a bit green, presumably back then. And um, and also, when you see a band, you're never sure about their longevity. You're never sure about where they're really going to go in the world and what they're really going to mm. do. And they've been one of the bands that, that oh my I God, think I know. have surprised everyone with a massive longevity yeah. um, and been creative throughout their careers. How did mm -hmm. you view them back then? What, what uh, like? I'll tell you a funny story and I'll try not to mention any names because uh, it wouldn't be fair on the person that said it. But um, there's a very cool dude in Birmingham who was also in um, uh, bands, you know, who did, who did quite well. And uh, it was a long time ago, but, you know, we would all record our demos and stuff um, at Bob Lamb's studio. Bob was the guy that produced the first UB40 album. Um, it, you know, it's just a very basic one. I don't know if I'm now referring to the, the demo of Planet Earth or I don't know if I'm referring to the, the finished version, but we were having one of our normal sort of regular late night gatherings around it this person's house I won't say who it was he was a musician he's a he um and he brought in I don't know how he got it but it was an early copy before it was released of planet earth and um he said hey guys what what, what do you reckon to this and we all listened we're all sort of like hmm. and he goes it's not very good is it? it's not going to do anything 
I think it's shit, isn't it? <laughs> well, he was wrong. This was a period where you, you know, the second single, Soul Train, was successful. And mm -hmm. that came along. How did your life change at that moment? Do you remember a change? Um, and that, of course, was produced by John Walters, who used to be in Landscape. Um, a change. Well, we did Top of the Pops and everything. Um, I think we were so sort of... We were proud of our Birmingham roots. And we were proud of our individuality. And we liked to think that we weren't sort of lumped in with anyone else. Um, I know there were a lot of bands that were called sort of new jazz at the time, like Sade and Carmel and Blue Rondo a la Turk and various people, but we just, we weren't really like them actually. I think we're quite hard to bag, you know, with what we've done at Swan's Way. Um, how did we feel? How did it change us? It really didn't change us at all. In fact, I remember, um, God, because, you know, we used to get put up in really nice hotels. Um, the record company spent a lot of money on us. I think Simon Le Bon used to, oh, not Simon Le Bon, <laughs> Simon Woods used to pay us £50 a week. That was a fortune back then. <laughs> because of the pull of fame and success and doing what you want to do, mm -hmm. um, you can be extremely naive in terms of contractual things, in terms of what you deserve to have. Whereas when you get older, you have a completely different, different view of your worth. Yeah. See? Were you like that? Do you think? Do you think you had this sort of essential naivety back then? Maybe everyone. I think when it, I think when it came to sort of business and contractual stuff, um, you know, we did get to use um, the top lawyers and stuff to, for for the publishing contracts and the recording contracts. But I think we just we're just so giddy, you know, having fun and giggling, and you know, um, we were probably very naive actually, and. Um, probably should have done things differently but we didn't and we just we really had a lot of fun and um as I say that um we, we just concerned ourselves with all the normal stuff that we always concerned ourselves with I remember there's a, a party thrown after we'd done I think it was Historia Swan's Way and there's a big party thrown at um I think at the Gore Hotel in Kensington and the really lovely guy used to be the editor of Melody Maker what was his name Steve Sutherland um he was so nice he done a picture on us when we were in Brighton one time and put us on the front cover and um he was talking I mean we all had a lot to drink and he just found it amazing that all I could talk about was um my new fence I was getting in the garden <laughs> I think it's just like I don't know maybe a Birmingham thing we're just kind of oh fame whatever you know come on let's just be pleased about the new fence <laughs> this was a um a period of success and um I suppose, I, don't, I mean, there are always many factors why um, a band splits or disintegrates or things change. What was the reason behind you as a band at that point um, changing? Because obviously you and Rick stayed together. Yeah, we did. Um, um, but Robert uh, went off to do his own thing. But Yeah, I he certainly did. He, he did a thing called Mighty Math. He, he's so creative, Rob. He always does great stuff. He's an amazing artist now. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, digital, spiritual photography. It's just gorgeous. Um, I think, I mean, you know, 
always excited, always wanting to do new things, always kind of um, hungry for experiences, hungry to create more. I, I was passionate about being creative. And the whole thing with Swan's Way sort of, you know, it slowed down. We'd done our album. You know, we had a, a good degree of success. Um, but then I think, I don't know, it just seemed to, to be dragging. And me and Rick started getting passionate and excited about doing something completely different, you know? Um, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So it, it sort of just petered out. And this all happened actually with hindsight. Looking back, it all happened in quite a short space of time. But, you know, when you were young, that's something else I'm realising. Um, time has a completely different meaning. You know, one year when you're young, it's like a really long time where it's like one year. Now it's like, oh, where did that go? You know, and you're putting things in the diary for like next autumn or next winter. Not this year, but 24. And it's like, it's a whole concept. You know, you have to adjust your reality I have to re adjust my reality completely about living on the planet at this point but um so yeah it, it just was kind of a natural progression how it fell apart and um very amicable nobody was upset with anyone and me and Rick just decided let's start from scratch again let's do something completely different and I've been doing backing vocals in um Swan's Way and then you know on some of the songs like Illuminations singing with Rob on choruses but I wanted to kind of really find my voice as well. I wanted to um, hone it down and be creative in a different way to how I had been creative in Swan's Way. So me and Rick decided to do something completely different. He went back to his guitar. What sort of music do you think you were influenced at that point that you actually decided to go in, in a slightly different direction? We were listening very much to um, Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards um, for the grooves. We were listening to Grace Jones a lot. Um, oh, Sister Sledge, believe it or not. Um, I hate to say it, but we'd always been fans of Carrie Glitter. Um, um, T-Rex, obviously, always loved Bowie and Roxy. So it was the glammy stuff, you know, the trashy glammy stuff with grooves. Um, so we were kind of coming up. That's like, you know, the guitar riff down now, 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 in, in no memory. It's quite reminiscent of, say, like Stone Satisfaction or, you know, a T-Rex riff or something. Um, we, that was important for us. But also I had to find a vocal style that I really liked. So I think I tried mixing a bit of probably like Grace Jones, you know, obviously primarily myself, but I 
took influences from different people. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think that who else are we listening to? I'm wondering. Um, I think that's about it in a nutshell, really. Um, that was it. Yeah, and and we bought a very early um, like little four track setup. So we could do stuff at home ourselves, which um, was perfect. That was new. Everything was, you know, you, you couldn't really do that in Swan's Way. We, but a couple of years later, there were these home recording setups and Rick learned to program. And he ended up being very good at that, actually. So um, that's how we started. So was yeah. this a point for you to really get into writing as well, much more? Did that push you in that um, way, just purely because, you know, you had the equipment? <laughs> well I mean a, a lot a lot of the Swan's Way stuff actually um you know quite a lot of the lyrics I'd, I'd written as well with Rob um I'd played keyboards before when I was in play things but um yeah I mean Rick was really good with the guitar and the chords and everything although I sometimes I put you know chords together as well for songs um but the lyrics were really mine and the vocal melodies um we worked we worked very well together and I actually found the voice I wanted to use. I found it for No Memory Demo. That was a breakthrough for me. That was, um, what do they call it? One of those moments. Um, Light bulb. Yeah, something like that. Um, I remember actually I'd gone to the little Indian shop at the bottom of my road to buy a pint of milk and um, I, I was going to come and sing. After that, I was going to come and sing... Um, the main vocal on no memory and I was kind of I was quite nervous thinking how's this going to sound and uh I went and did it and I always remember that and it sounded good and we started playing it to people and they're like wow this is really good um so that really inspired us we did three songs first of all I think there's rhythm of resistance no memory and plug me in so was this when the tube the, the British tv program got interested in in yeah. you and coming yeah. to uh um do a little yes film thing no, we, yeah we went to newcastle i love that piece of the film footage that's one of my favorite actually um how it happened was because we'd obviously had some success with swan's way so you know i was in a position where i could actually pick up the telephone and phone up people producers at radio one and they would actually you know the secretaries would put me through and so i um sent that early demo it might have been to Mike Hawks I seem to think at the time possibly uh and he absolutely loved it so Radio One session was the first thing we got that was the first sort of Scarlet Fantastic breakthrough I think someone from we got a phone call from Jazz Summers as well at that point he'd liked it um the tube got in touch Jazz Summers of course wham yeah uh, with Simon Napierbell yeah, and also yeah, yeah. yeah, it's got the late yeah. yeah yeah just to say who he is that's a yeah of course absolutely um so um then oops we went up to Newcastle and um they said that the guy who'd made Elvis Costello videos was going to make our video and they said have you got any ideas and I just had this idea I just said yeah I want to be surrounded by like large mirrors and um I want it to be kind of a bit psychedelic and moody and um and he just got this whole idea he just clicked and he had some other ideas about going out in, in the hills outside of Newcastle and he got me to wear this skirt 
that was like um, a screen so he could project stuff on it. So he projected a picture of Rick playing the guitar onto my skirt. And it was quite an artsy idea and it just came together beautifully. And I mean, we did it and we didn't see it before it was released. And I remember, you know, you're sitting there, oh my God, what's it going to look like on the telly? You know, ah, and um, oh my God, I saw it and I was like, oh God, oh. And then my friend started phoning me up and it's like, you look great, it's fantastic, I love it, you know. And so that was really good. That got quite a buzz going for Scarlet Fantastic. Um, but I have to tell you, you know, I said earlier on in the interview, um, about one of the worst moments ever, about you really think you've blown it. Okay, so we did this video for the tube, which was on, you know, which is still on YouTube now. It's brilliant, it's one of my favorite. And we did it for the demo before we recorded the finished version at Pete Waterman's studio. That's another story. But so we have obviously had got a buzz going about this because it was a really good little piece of um, film. So, uh, we were going to do some gigs and we were going to do this secret warm-up gig at a college in London. And we said to them, do not advertise it. You know, this is like a secret gig. And also, I don't know what me and Rick were thinking, but we had with us as a backing band, like, um, and they were very good, but they were like a reggae band from Hansworth um, with uh, a keyboard player and a bass player. And I don't know. It, and so this place was really, really hot. I was wearing this white satin catsuit with very high heels and the ceiling was really, really low. So sort of like, like that. And then I got really sweaty and the, the catsuit became kind of like clingy and sticky. And then the sound was absolutely diabolical and they bloody well did advertise it. And so all the record companies turned up and it's like, I could see as this is all going horrifically wrong, I could see each one leaving until there was like, you know, virtually no one in the room. And oh my God, I was so dis. And we played a really bad gig. We were dreadful. Um, you know, I, I remember we'd had, a, we had a manager at a time called Jack Stephen. He was lovely. Um, he lived in Chiswick. Um, we stayed with him and I remember I just went to bed and I pulled the juve over my head and cried my eyes out. And we did have to work about a year to get back kind of what we'd lost because everybody just thought oh god they're shit you know they made a great film but they're just rubbish you know but actually we pulled it all together in the end and um, where there's a will there's a way exactly exactly Ooh, you but know think... that, we talk, talk about failing and falling I mean I did my massive great big fail in public in front of a load of people you feel it's the most awful thing doing it on stage in front of people you're so vulnerable but yeah I picked myself back up <laughs> A lot of people that you work with, you seem to um, seem to crop up again in your life. You mentioned about recording, going to uh, mm. PWL and working with Pete Waterman, who you worked mm -hmm. with later. You mentioned uh, John Walters from uh, Landscape. Yeah. Einstein A Go Go, brilliant song. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And working with him and then working with him many, many years later with the second Scarlet Fantastic um album but before yeah. we get to that let's go to uh pwl uh, and your introduction to that and this what was then just going into that period where it became the biggest music factory wasn't it it was just the most um amazing successful production unit in that era yeah they were um and they did incredibly well um 
it wasn't the kind of production that would have suited Scarlet Fantastic. So when we got involved with Pete, we, we said we want to kind of produce it ourselves, but we'd like to use, you know, your engineers here. So there was Rick, myself, a guy called Days Washbourne and a girl called Karen Hewitt. And um, we did it on the night shift. What had happened? Our manager at the time, Jack Stephen, who's a lovely guy, he used he was, used to be an A and R at um, I think it was Sony, and we'd gone and played him a Scarlet Fantastic demo, and he absolutely loved it and said, "I'd like to manage you." So, the initial introduction to Pete Waterman came through Jack, and so Pete had no memory. He well, I don't think he was convinced by it, but he said, look, I'll give I'll give you kids, yeah, I'll give you kids the studio time. You know, it's, it's a larger than life character as Pete Waterman. He'd be there in his cowboy boots on his throne with his missiles in his office. <laughs> um, so he um, gave us this downtime in the studio to go and record No Memory. And uh, we did. We had great fun doing it. Happy, happy time. And uh, after that, he absolutely loved it. He said, it's a dog's bollocks. So, you know, he absolutely loved it. And um, because he was kind of behind it and they were so happening as, as, a, as a, you know, PWL, everyone wanted to be involved with them. So he set up a couple of record company meetings and we were very lucky. We were wined and dined and we were given a choice of a couple of labels that we could sign to. And... Um, we chose Arista. We really liked Jeff at the time. He was uh, he was the um, managing director at the time. So yeah, that that was a good time. And then we carried on to record the rest of the album at PWL, and as so it was produced by Rick and Days Washbourne and myself and Karen. Karen did some of the mixes that still carry on. You know that people still play. Someone said at Carcassonne last year that No Memory, the extra sensory mix, they said was the biggest record there. And in fact. Um, some guys are actually doing another remix of it. <laughs> it seems to go on and on and it's great. I mean, no, yeah, it's good, no complaints. I mean, did that really, I mean, in the, the early nineties, I think it was when it really uh, kicked in, wasn't it? As, as the, the club here. Yeah, it, it became um, quite a big thing in Ibiza and, you know, the Balearic scene and also in the clubs in England, especially in Liverpool. And Andy Weatherall had picked up on it, you see. Andy Weatherall had discovered this little gem, No Memory. And I think it became the hedonistic song for everyone. You know, we have the sun in our hair, moon in our eyes, and we just don't give a damn because we're free. Everybody loved that and still does, you know. Um, and at my very best, that's what I like to believe that I can be, you know, free. because. It, it, we have a lot of crap in our heads and, you know, to, we just don't give a damn because we're free. The sun in our hair, moon in our eyes, that's nature. That's nature helping us to feel free. It's getting out of the head into a bigger thought process to do with the universe. And yeah, I'm going hippie on you now, by the way. <laughs> okay. um, but that's, that's um, and I'm so happy that that feeling that I had for that song has, has, What's the word? It's uh, trans. Um, it's transmitted. It's been caught by people. People have made it kind of their song as well. You know, it's helped them through hard times. A lot of people have told me that, which is that's the best thing ever. If if just having done that once in your life, it makes it all worthwhile. 
So well, that's that's fantastic. That's really a really nice a really nice thought and a really nice thing to have achieved. I think. Yeah, um, I'm very proud about Leaf because is was this around the time that you met him? Leaf. Yeah. Leafy tree. He's my cowboy guardian angel now. I just wrote a song actually called Cowboy Guardian Angel. I've just recorded it for my new album, which will be out next year. Um, Leafy Tree, bless him. Um, he was from Virginia. I met him in a bar in Dublin. I was actually living with someone else at the time, <laughs> uh, an Irish guy. Um, bless him. No, he was lovely as well. But Leaf walked into the bar. He got his cowboy boots on, spurs, cowboy hat. I think I'd always had a bit of a dream about meeting a cowboy. So, and he seemed to be the real deal. He got this drawl. I remember one of my girlfriends, a couple of weeks later, when we scarpered and went to Birmingham for a little bit, she goes, God, she goes, going into a hotel room with him must be like going into a hotel room with Elvis. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I met him supposedly to um, write songs with, which, of course, is what we ended up doing. Um, but, of course, um, a passion sort of developed quite quickly. We were very young, very, very young still. And, uh, yeah, so we actually we went via London, via Birmingham, and then booked a flight to Turkey and sort of said our spiritual vows and um, were married for 27 years. It's a long time, isn't it? When did you know that he was the one? Instinct. Intuition. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've been like that a lot in my life, and I think I still continue to be. So I'm, I'm hopefully I've got a good radar. <laughs> well, I did in that case. I mean, it wasn't always easy. Of course it wasn't. Um, nothing ever is. You know, love isn't easy. Um, but I, I felt that he was meant to be a part of my life. And I'd also had these really sort of interesting dreams and sort of stirrings before I met him. And one of the dreams was this big, I'd, I saw this big canvas with a blue background and this big eagle on it and um when I met him as well he had like an eagle on his jacket so I was thinking this is like a sign but also like the American thing as well um yeah I just I don't know we just we just kind of knew you you know you throw yourself into a situation and basically we ran off together well he I think had, had a partner in or still possibly did in San Francisco and I was I thought I was in love with this person in Dublin and you know I'd got my house full of stuff there I'd got my piano there all my plants and everything that I'd had for years when I was living with Rick and um so just scarpered and my mother actually said at that point she asked one of my friends she goes is she mad has she gone mad <laughs> and um in the end obviously it all worked out and, and my mum ended up being very fond of Leaf and he struggled with his health throughout the whole relationship he struggled but in 96, he was given the gift of life. He had a liver transplant. And then, you know, he lived for 21 years after that, um, which is quite amazing. And then we had a son in 2000, who's now a big lad, 23, drummer, brilliant drummer. I probably mentioned that earlier. Sean, Sean Vincent. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of, you just think somehow, I sometimes think that we have this sort of destiny trail that we're on. I've kind and that you have to sort of be open for things to work out the way they're supposed to. And sometimes the only way you can know how is intuition. You have to trust it sometimes. And that's kind of what I do. So, and I still do. But you, you worked together, you worked together, wrote songs and you, yeah, you had a lots. deal with-, with um, Pete, WL, yeah, well, what happened, what happened was this, because um, I met Leaf in 90. Um, we very quickly recorded an album. We wrote a load of songs together, very creative 
relationship, wrote a load of songs together. Um, we rented this little cottage out in um, Shropshire, which is gorgeous, surrounded by sheep. And we used to drive into um, Birmingham every day and go and record it with Bob Lamb. So we did an album called Pilots of the Impossible. And then it was at this point, end of 91, early 92, no memory was getting really popular. Um, you know, people were telling me, oh, it's selling, you know, original copies are selling for like hundreds of pounds and, you know, blah, blah. And so this is all good news. And so I was just in my little country cottage. I wasn't really aware of what was going on. And so I thought, oh, because we needed a record deal. We needed, you know, we'd done this album. Um, so I thought I'll phone up Pete Waterman. So um, I phoned up Pete Waterman. He was like, yes. He goes, come in, come in, have a meeting, you know. And uh, bless him. I was later told by an American manager I had, interesting story. Um, Pete said at a later point, oh, he'd got us a secret detective out looking for me, which I thought was uh, interesting. But my manager, Bud Prager at the time, he used to manage Foreigner, the late Bud Prager, but um, bless him. So that's what Bud told me a few years later. But anyway, so. Wait, 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 wait. What was he looking for with the secret detective? He was looking for me to find out where I'd gone, apparently. All right. <laughs> so apparently, this is the story. Um, as, you know, who knows? I mean, he told Bud later that he had been looking for me or had a secret detective out looking for me. Unless I've got it wrong, but I, I seem to remember that story. Okay, back to what I was saying. Um, so we went in to see Pete, Minleaf, and we played Pete a demo of three songs that we'd done. And Pete just goes, you know how good these are, don't you? Of course, we were loving all of this. And we went, yeah. He goes, well, you know, don't you? I said, well, yeah, we know. He goes, but he goes, I bet a lot of people don't see it, do they? And we're, we're going like, he goes, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, we'd like to come in and, um, you know, record a single. He goes, come in and do, do this, you know. And he sort of opened his arms wide, you know, come in and do what you like, you know. We're like, wow, you know, this is really good news. Um, so um, we moved to London and we signed um, a publishing deal with All Boys Music for our Kale and Kale stuff because... Um, it's spelled K-A-H-A-L, that's my married name, Cahol, pronounced Kale. Well, Leaf said it was, but I always say Cahol, but anyway, whatever. Um, so um, we signed a deal and we worked with um, a brilliant guy who's a very dear friend of mine called Barry Stone um, from Jules and Stone. And he's produced so many people over the years. Um, he, he's become quite a successful producer. Um um, so we worked with him, recorded loads and loads of songs. We were actually with Pete for about three years. Uh, and we then he sent us up to a studio in Manchester and he goes, go and hang out with Oasis. <laughs> uh, I think he was trying to find this sort of perfect sound for us. I don't know. He was going through a, a, an interesting period at the time. He'd signed Dead or Alive as well. And I think everyone was getting a bit frustrated because, you know, he'd, he'd apparently got you know, these bands signed and he didn't seem to be doing an awful lot. He was kind of involved. I mean, I love Pete and I, I would never say anything negative about him. So I'm not um, he was a great guy to work with, very creative and funny. Um, and he had said originally, you know, he saw a, a gap in the market for me and Leaf as like the new Eurythmics, this, that and the other. Um, in the, you know, and we had a really good record deal, actually. Financially, it was amazing. And we did a lot of traveling as well as recording. And um, more recently, 
the songs are actually available um, as a little compilation on, you know, you can download Show Me No Mercy, it's called, which was the song which everyone seemed to, that was the more PWL type song because we co-wrote it with Mike Stock. It's called Show Me No Mercy. It's a catch, it's a catchy pop song. It's it's good. Um, it's there online if anyone wants to download it. And that's a Kale and Kale. I've called it Scarlet Fantastic as well because then people will kind of know, you know, who it is and where it is and whatever. So yeah, me and Liv, we wrote loads of songs. And then after that, um, we went through various um scenarios and then we worked, we did an album. Well, we had Sean, you know, in 2000. Oh, and we ran a nightclub in Notting Hill. I know, this is mad. <laughs> oh this God, is we... absolutely mad. So, how, you know, how do you get to run a nightclub? Well, um, Leaf was a country rocker originally, but, you know, back in the States, uh, he used to support his music by bartending and he was like a brilliant bartender. So he managed a couple of bars on the Portobello Road. There was the ground floor bar and then there was the other one. I can't remember what it was called, but I used to put on Maggie's music nights. So I would sort of source local talent. I, I ran this little ad, I think, in NME or something. And I used to say, oh, send us your demo and... Um, um, you know, and I used to, I found some really good talents, actually, um, some great people. Um, gosh, I'm just trying to, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember that, but a couple of acts that have gone on to do quite well. Um, you, you so, yes. Richard Norris from The Grid, you had the Chemical Brothers, didn't you? you know. Yeah, absolutely. The Chemical Brothers did a party there. I mean, but this, this, that, so what happened was because we got quite a little bit notorious around Notting Hill. Um, an opportunity came for us to invest in, uh, with a Swedish guy and some Moroccan guys um, in this sort of underground club type place. So yeah, so we put music on and had bands and had parties. I don't, I don't think the legalities were all in place. I, don't, I think we had a music license for like a duo. Um, but, you know, we'd have full bands on and everything. And it was all a bit naughty of us, really. But what the heck, we did it. And then actually, um, yeah, that was baby time as well, I, I think. I remember, because smoking was legal in those days, you could smoke in places. And I remember I had this um, little sort of, I used to call it my bubble, that I pushed Sean around in when he was a baby, because I'd take him down to all the sound checks. So he grew up with thumping bass going through his little baby body. And um, there'd be like this plastic cover you could put on with the air conditioning in the little baby buggy so I wouldn't feel bad if people were smoking down there a bit but I'd only have him there for the sound checks I'd make sure that he'd go home with a nice Swedish waitress um babysitter I want to get back to Scarlet Fantastic because when I mentioned John Walters yeah then again in 2016 uh you released the second album back to Leaf again I'll, I'll, we did the first album we did was Mighty K Club Silencio, and we did a collaboration with Crabby from Pop Will Eat Itself. Um, and then, what was the next one? Oh, and then I did a Maggie and Martin album with Martin Watkins, who was the keyboard player for, I'm going in chronological order here, he was the keyboard player for um, Mark Harmon and still is. And we did a lovely album, I'm very proud of it, it's called Union. In the meantime, Leaf did an album, um, um, sort of he wanted to do his uh, more country stuff which, which it's a great little album um and then um yeah me and Liv together in 2016 um recorded and and it, it was very therapeutic for him because he was very unwell and I'd say from about 2015 2016 focusing on making an album 
the music, you know, the, the destruction of focusing on that and not focusing on his health issues. Um, it was it was really good. It was very therapeutic. And um, it wasn't John Walters that was involved with that one. It was um, one of the songs on it was a co-write with Mike Thorne um, from, uh, you know, the producer in New York. I'd been in New York in 2014 and we I'd visited him, stayed with him and we'd written together a song called Beyond Pluto. And me and Leaf recorded it and put it on the Reverie album, which is the one that was released, I think, 2016. Um, so actually, the album I'm recording now is, is kind of a natural progression from the Reverie album. And one of the songs so far is a co-write with John Walters, because we did get together and we wrote a few songs together. And one of them, a tango, it's called Berlin Room, um, is a co-write with John. And I'm, I might put another one or two on, I'm not quite sure yet. I've, I've done about seven, waiting for three of them to be mixed. And then um, I've got about another two or three to do. So it'll be done next year. So yeah, and it's nice to go back and work with people that you had worked with in the eighties. I did that both with um, John Walters and um, Mike Thorne. So I think what's both... interesting is that you can hear, especially with Reverie, you can hear uh, development, but at the same time, you can hear the history. Do you see what I mean? It's like, it feels yes. like a mixture, which is very clever. And it feels like you haven't stuck in the past. You've actually, you, you hear the development, is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. I'm, I... I always thought it's important to, you know, move on to try and create something new. I wouldn't just want to regurgitate what I've done in the past. I mean, I think it's great that people, you know, reinvent songs like No Memory, you know, remixes and stuff. That's absolutely brilliant. They're putting their own take on it. Um, and obviously I've done sort of acoustic versions and stuff because people just like that song. Um, but in terms of style, I, I wouldn't try and purposely it just wouldn't make sense to me to get go back interesting I mean I'm watching the I don't know if you saw it it's great it's on iPlayer at the moment the Picasso documentary Beauty and the Beast he comes out with some really interesting things um and he's always doing something new he's always creating something new always wants to move forward um I think what I do is probably it's it's probably a mishmash of everything I've ever done with maybe just some things of the moment thrown in like I work with some brilliant local musicians and also this fantastic young engineer who I met I was doing like a guest lecture at um, uh, Brighton Uni for the production music students and I met this guy um, Sean Horsfield and he's, he's engineering all my stuff um, it's really good because because Leaf you see used to do all of that and of course, Leafy's not here anymore. So yeah. um, I had to find someone else. And, and Sean Horsfield is absolutely brilliant. And so I've got all kinds of people playing. I've got my lovely dentist on trumpet. I've got my piano tuner playing the piano. He's brilliant. Uh, he plays in bands as well. And my dentist is in jazz bands and stuff as well. So um, it's, as I said, I think it's kind of a natural carry on from the Reverie album. It's going to be a, another Scarlet Fantastic album. But again, it's something different as well different because I've co-written some of the stuff with John Walters um, and of course Hi-Fi Sean's been mixing the tracks for me as well and he's so talented and so creative and he adds some lovely bits as well so yeah it's great. I, I want to ask you something at the end because 
Um, and I hope it's not too personal, but when my mum died, I looked after my mum for many years. Oh, bless and, you. And the last three years, I I'm stayed with her in England. Mm. And and in the last two weeks, got a hospital bed in the front room and slept next to her. Oh, and, you know, like you do everything. Wonderful. And, and accompanied her right to the end. But the night yeah. before she died, in fact, it was mm. two nights before she died, but she went mm. unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, she said to me what she wanted for my life. Oh, wow. And she said, I want you to meet a man who is as kind to you as you have been to me. I mm. wa- and then she looked at my life from the future and said, this is how I see your life going. How it wonderful. Gave me this sort of, it's like a sort of um, a health, self-help library of books that is here. That's in memory. And it left me with this amazing, positive thing that I hold with me in my life. And when Beautiful. things go wrong, I always depend on it and look at it and I just wonder because you had which was clearly I think you said 27 years you had a very long loving relationship with your husband Leif he wasn't always easy don't forget he was a uh, cowboy (laughs) I just wondered what what he's left you with Mm -hmm. that is like a positive thing in your life um I I do feel touch wood um that there is someone looking over me I mean that's why I wrote Cowboy Guardian Angel um I before he died and we, we knew it obviously we knew it was coming because he'd had um kidney transplant bless him as well in the end and it was all going really well and then suddenly his liver packed up which is just very unfortunate so he kind of went downhill and downhill and downhill but because we knew it was coming which was a blessing that we knew it meant we could kind of clean the slate with each other we could forgive each other for some of the awful things we might have done to each other or some of the bad patterns we'd fallen into you know when you're with someone 27 years it's a long time and you know you go we went through a lot and um so we we basically we made peace so you know he could go on I could be peaceful in the knowledge that he'd he's he's gone on to you know the greater energy which we're we're all we're all going there one day I mean you know um but I I felt a sense of peace and uh, you know we achieved what we'd set out to do and I felt also that he yeah, he wanted for me as well to, um, you know, carry on in my life doing music and, you know, maybe meet someone else, which funnily enough, I have. And funnily enough, um, he's American as well. It's just such a, I sometimes think, oh, Leafy Tree, what have you, who, you set me up, haven't you? Um, the guy that I'm with now is, is the loveliest, loveliest man, um, very kind and, um, caring and very he loves loves my music he loves music and we've seen so many great gigs recently um, we saw peaches at the weekend we saw grace jones saw depeche mode lovely man um and i i he's also a widow and i i feel that kind of i don't know that maybe there are people looking looking out for us people up there Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. you, we we did talk earlier and i just say this is a, a final comment you talked earlier about what success is and I've always felt success is actually doing and almost the allowance of being able to carry on 
and do what you want to do, which you've Absolutely. always done and yep. which you are doing now. Yep. And I wish you much success with Thank the you. next Carlet Fantastic album. Thank you and so much. Everything, everything they say about you is true. <laughs> your checks in the post <laughs> you're a lovely person oh, Maggie, bless you. thank well, you so much thank you you're lovely too up there is an interview i recommend down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews and here is where you can connect <laughs> When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.